We're titling Hope That Was Seen, and we are referring to those who experienced what they had waited for for so long, the Lord Jesus Christ, their Messiah. And we are going to Luke chapter 2, and we're going to be picking it up sort of as a postlude, if you please, to the advent of Christ. The scene where we pick it up is that Jesus is eight, is actually eight days old, and we're going to be moving him to when he's just 40 days old. But the birth of Christ has already occurred here. And by the way, we will be looking at that Christmas story and, uh, and reading it as well on, uh, on Christmas Eve, if you join us as well. But beginning in Luke chapter 2 and verse 21, we'll pick it up there where it says, And at the end of eight days... That is, from his birth, he was circumcised. He was called Jesus, the name given by the angel before he was conceived in the womb. And when the time came for their purification according to the law of Moses, they brought him up to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord as it is written in the law of the Lord. Every male who opens the womb shall be called holy to the Lord and offer a sacrifice according to What is said in the law of the Lord, a pair of turtle doves, a couple of pigeons. Now, there was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon. And this man was righteous and devout, waiting for the consolation or comfort of Israel. And the Holy Spirit was upon him. And it had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not see death before he had seen the Lord's Christ, the promised one. And he came in the Spirit into the temple. And when the parents brought in the child Jesus to do for him, according to the custom of the law, he took him up into his arms and blessed God and said, Now, Lord, you are letting your servant depart in peace. According to your word, for my eyes have seen your salvation that you have prepared in the presence of all peoples a light for revelation to the Gentiles and for glory to your people Israel. And his father and mother marveled at what was said about him. And Simeon blessed them and said to Mary, his mother, Behold, this child is appointed for the fall and rising of many in Israel and for a sign that is opposed And a sword will pierce through your own soul also, so that the thoughts of many hearts may be revealed. Now, we started talking about hope. This is our theme for Christmas this year, the hope that was seen. Now, as I look to 2015, there are a number of things that I hope to accomplish, none of which are certain. When the Bible talks about hope, it leaves no room for doubt. Indeed, the very word for hope, particularly in the New Testament, is a word that means to anticipate. It conveys the idea of an expectation of something that is sure, something that is certain, albeit unseen at the time. And the Apostle Paul gives us his own sort of definition of this In Romans chapter 8, we saw this last week, we look at it again, where he says, for in this hope, uh, we were saved. Now, hope that is seen is not hope for who hopes for what he sees. Uh, 
rhetorical question. Nobody. But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. So in other words, biblical hope is tied to that which we cannot see, but we believe will eventually come about. That's what hope is. And last week, we, we sort of did a topical thing on this hope. We, we said that the prophecies of Jesus' coming, written hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years before he came, and their fulfillment give us hope. Uh, the lineage, the genealogy of Jesus gives us hope. Uh, the struggles of Jesus, everything that was going against him, and yet he survived all those struggles, including all of those temptations to become the one who would become a sacrifice for us, gives us hope. The theology of Jesus, that he was God, remained God, and became man to become the God-man, gives you and I the hope of hopes. And the characters of the story, including the one we're going to spend the balance of our time on this morning, the characters of Christmas, those who, for whom hope was seen, that gives us hope. And speaking of characters, Simeon. Like no one else in the story of Jesus and his first advent, demonstrated this divine expectation that biblical hope gives us. And that you and I both need in our lives as well. Because this same Jesus, as the angels told the disciples, as Jesus ascended into heaven, this same Jesus who you see going into heaven will come again in like manner. That is our hope. And that's what the Bible teaches. His, for Simeon, was a hope that was seen, a hope that was realized. Now, Simeon was a part of a Simeon was a part of a of a group that was known in Bible times as the quiet in the land. Uh, the quiet in the land, in fact, uh, modern day Mennonites have picked up on this phrase. But the quiet in the land were a group of fledgling, they're just a small number of people who loved God. They loved his word. They loved his promises. Uh, but they were not, uh, they were not political uh, individuals. In fact, they hated politics. They didn't want to get involved in, with the zealots in the land. They were quiet. They were faithful. They studied. They were dedicated. They were prayerful. And they were waiting for the coming of all of these promises, and namely the one that God would have in his son, sending his son, the Messiah, Jesus, to come. And so, in fact, if you're wondering, well, you know, we're not supposed to be quiet today. We're, we're New Testament. We're the church. We're supposed to be making noise. Amen? Well, yes. I mean, if you're talking about Jesus, if you're talking about the gospel, if you're talking about his return, if you're talking about heaven and hell, yeah, make noise. But the Bible doesn't contradict itself when it tells us that, uh, that we are to be a quiet kind of people in other ways. Did you know that in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, it says, aspire to live a quiet and peaceable life. Now, obviously, that's not my life verse, okay? <laughs> but it does say that. Have you ever read that? Oh, by the way, in the interest of full disclosure, I know that in my preaching, a lot of you have said, you say a lot of times when you're preaching, have you ever read that? Now, I'm not implying that you've never read it. I'm just trying to draw your attention to the text, okay? But, and though I don't know of anybody else who includes that in their preaching, I actually got it from somebody and not a preacher. Actually, I guess she was. Um, 
it was 1989, I was sitting in a conference, and Elizabeth Elliot, the wife of the great missionary martyr Jim Elliot, was teaching, and she was actually addressing a number of the women while her husband Lars was adjusting the microphone. And so she's kind of talking off to the side. She's particularly talking to the women who just really want to, have to play an active role in society and all this stuff. And she said, you know, the Bible actually teaches you to live a quiet and peaceable life. And, and she quoted 1 Thessalonians 4. And then she paused and she goes, have you ever read that? <laughs> and that just sort of went right through me. And I realized this is a great way to draw attention to the word of God. Now, Simeon was this kind of a man. He was a quiet man. But he was a dedicated man. He was a hopeful man. He was waiting for the Messiah to come. And here he is. He walks into the temple, as we just read here. And when you look at Simeon, you look at Jesus' life, brother. If you just look at the, the, the whole preponderance of what we have, just if you put together everything that Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John have on Jesus' early childhood, it's a little bit... It looks a little bit like our youngest son's uh, baby book, seriously. If you look at our oldest baby book, it's like this thick, you know. You look at our youngest, it's like this, it's got like five pictures in it, you know. And uh, that's the way Jesus is, and even though he was a firstborn. I mean, there just aren't many pictures. We get, the, we get the picture of his birth. We get the picture of the circumcision, that's in verse 21. We get the picture of his dedication, that takes place later on, as I'll mention here in a minute in verse 22 and following. And then we get a a couple of other pictures. You get a picture of the wise men when they come. He's probably a year and a half old. He could be up to two because, remember, Herod wiped out the kids in Bethlehem up to two years of age. So Jesus was also in a house, so we know that that wasn't taking place at the time of the the actual nativity. Uh, We've got the trip down to Egypt and back. Then you got a big jump to when he's 12 years old on the verge of manhood, and then we see him in the temple, and that's it. We don't see him again for 18 years until he presents himself, you know, at his baptism. So just a, several snapshots is about all we have. But what we do have is we have some very interesting things happening when he was born. Eight days later, verse 21 says he was circumcised. That's when they named the kid. And it tells us there, they named him Jesus, just like the angel told him to. By the way, the angel told both Joseph and Mary to name him Jesus, making sure that they got it right, because apparently Jesus wasn't in the family namehood. Usually you named your kid after the father or somebody closer, somebody who had died in dedication to them. So the angel says, you name him Jesus. And why did they name him Jesus? Well, the angel told Joseph why you will give his name, make Jesus, you'll give him the name of Jesus, because he shall, what? Save his people from their sins. Jesus is the word which means God saves. And that's his purpose in coming. That's why we tell people, that's why I'm telling you, if you're here and you've got problems, well, welcome to my world. Everybody's got a problem, all right? You've got issues, you've got family issues, you've got kid issues, you've got marital issues, you've got financial issues, you've got job issues, you've got all kinds, you've got health issues. Some of you are maybe battling with cancer. We tell people when we tell them about Jesus that Jesus didn't come to take away your problems. He came to take away your sins. And that's a bigger problem. It doesn't mean he doesn't enter into your problems. It doesn't mean he doesn't give you hope. In fact, he is our hope in every issue, because even if you die of the worst problem in the world, you go to heaven, that's not a problem, right? 
And Jesus is the one who takes away our sins. So in verse 21, he's named Jesus. That's eight days after he's been born. Verse 22 and following is his dedication in the temple. The circumcision would have taken place back in Bethlehem. But the dedication took place in Jerusalem in the temple. And that was 32 32 days later. Jesus is now 40 days old, all in accordance with the law. So he's about a month and a half old. And his mom and dad walk into the temple and they present an offering. We see it in verse 24, what the offering is. And it tells us a little bit about the economic circumstances of Joseph and Mary. You see it there. They offer... uh, pair of turtle doves, and a couple of pigeons. This is a poor man's offering. They couldn't even afford a lamb, which would have been the normal offering. And there is a sense in which God is talking to us here. He's telling us again that Jesus came to identify with you. He came to identify with me. I love every element of this story. It's not saying Jesus came for all of the elitist. He didn't come for the wealthy. He didn't come for the rich and famous. He came for the lowly. Joseph and Mary would have even been noticed as they walked through a a marketplace. They were just a normal-looking, poor couple. Not beggars, necessarily. No, they had a job. It made, you know, gainful employment as a carpenter or as a mason, which is what Jesus would do. But he was poor, just the same. And it tells us that here in verse 24. This gives us a sense of who Jesus... I don't care who you are. You're lowly. You might be jobless or you have a job. And you're just barely making ends meet. Listen. And you might even be somebody who's been rejected by your family. You've been rejected by the people. This is who Jesus came to identify with. You, with me. The whole story speaks of that. And in verse 25... And for the balance of our time, we have this character, Simeon. He walks into this thing. We barely know anything about him other than his character, which just sort of explodes out of the text. And that's really cool, his, his character. But we don't know anything else except for what tradition tells us. Tradition tells us he was 113 years old. We have no idea whether he was 85 or 113 or somewhere in between. He was probably old. The language of the text indicates he's an old guy. Some think he was a priest because he's in the temple. We don't even know that for sure. But he is in the temple. We see that. And we don't know if if you know anything about the way the temple was laid out. There are all kinds of restrictions. Anybody could go into the court of the Gentiles. Jews, women, and Gentiles. Into the court of the Gentiles. That was the outer, the large, large area. Which I think is where they're at. And I'll show you in a minute why. If you go into the temple proper, the first thing you come into is the court of the court of women. So a woman, a Jew would have only Jews could go in there, and Jewish women—that's where the border was there. After that, there was the court of the priest, and women could not go through there. At any rate, they're in this temple area here, and there is a word in the song that Simeon sings that gives us every indication that they're in the court of the, of the Gentiles. And it has some major significance for us, which I'll come to in a moment. But notice how he's described. He was righteous and devout and waiting for the consolation of Israel, and the Holy Spirit was upon him. Wouldn't you like to be described like that? Now, I know that probably most of you are on Facebook. Some of you are not. God bless you. I'm on Facebook myself. I don't get on it often, but I get on it 
with some semi-regularity, mostly just posting devotional thoughts from my time with God. Uh, But I'm not immune to posting an occasional picture of some family moment, some anniversary or whatever. But the venue is sort of a, it sort of feeds the narcissistic society that we're in, does it not? In fact, I'm intrigued by the many posts that I've seen over the years of what I would call inner family praises. Don't we see our families? Inner family praises of a father of a son or a son of a father or a mother of a daughter or a daughter of a mother or a daughter of a father or a sister of a brother, all within the family. And I won't tell you what goes through my mind when I see these posts (laughs) because I realize that probably applies to a few of you. I don't want to offend you. However, the God book posts are never like that. When it comes to describing the character of someone, when it comes to praising somebody else, the Word of God is never, ever like that. In fact, it's just the opposite. There are praises given out. They are either praise to God directly or from God of another and their character or from one person to another person not in their immediate family. So you have David praising Jonathan. You have God praising Moses and Job and Daniel. You have Jesus praising the centurion for his faith, praising the Samaritan for coming back and thanking him, praising John the Baptist as the greatest of all of the prophets. You have the Apostle Paul praising Timothy and saying he was like a son, but he wasn't actually a son, was he? The praise of Joseph and Mary comes from God, but we don't read them praising one another. The praise of Simeon in this passage comes from two sources. Come from Luke and the Holy Spirit. The one is like a private investigator. If you read Luke 1, the first four verses, here's Luke 1. I'm, I'm like a dog on a bone finding out the truth of these things and the people and Jesus and the characters. That's what he says. He's like a private investigator. Luke did the, he did the study on Simeon. And the Holy Spirit, who is the divine author. And so Luke, or Simeon, gets his praise from these two sources. And what I want you to do is check out the God post on Simeon. He's righteous. He's devout. He's hopeful. And he is spirit-led. And let's look at him quickly in that order. He's righteous. You see that? That isn't talking about his character. That's talking about his standing with God. Whenever the Old Testament would talk about a person who had a relationship with God, it would often refer refer to him as a righteous individual. Not because he had earned his righteousness, but it had been given to him. This is way back in Genesis chapter 15 where it says, Abraham believed in God and God counted it to him for what? For righteousness. God gave it to him. And that has never changed. This is how God has always saved people. This is how God has always taken the sins away from people. This is how God has always made people his people. By taking away their unrighteousness and giving to them his righteousness. This is why Paul wrote in 2 Corinthians, God made Jesus who knew no sin to become sin for us, that we might become the 
righteousness of God in him. So that's what God does. He's, he imputes or he gives to us his righteousness when we believe in him. And this is exactly the standing that Simeon had. He was a righteous man because he had believed the promise of God. And particularly, this is why he was a man with hope waiting for the Christ to come. He was a devout man. This gets into his character. This gets into who he was. This gets into the fact that he wasn't just a man who believed. Something was coming out of it. He's called devout. Uh, and and his, his devotion is evidenced in his song. You read through that song and it's literally sown in with biblical truth and promises from the Old Testament, which tells us that he was a man of the word of God. In fact, he quotes from Isaiah 52, and here's, he even alludes to this passage in Isaiah 49, I will make you as a light for the nations that my salvation may reach to the end of the earth. If any of you are Tom Clancy fans, he was the author who died about a year ago, and of course several movies were made out of some of the books that he wrote. The one that made him famous back in the early 80s was The Hunt for Red October. Some of you have seen the movie, you know. And uh, so in this movie, and in this book rather, Clancy has this, the hero is a guy by the name of Jack Ryan. He's, a, he's sort of, a, he's a CIA analyst. He's just, he's just he's sort of a geek, you know, a knowledge guy. And he finds himself in the Joint Chiefs of Staff room, and they're debating what to do because they have found this Soviet-Russian submarine, high-tech submarine, nuclear-empowered submarine, one with nuclear missile capacity coming steamrolling right toward the United States. They're afraid they're going to get pummeled by it, and they think they, they ought to take the submarine out. But Jack Ryan, in the meeting, speaks up. He says, I don't think you should do it. I know this guy. I've studied this guy. He's a teacher. He's, a, he's smart. Uh, he wouldn't do this if he was going to attack the United States. In fact, I think he's going to defect to the United States. And of course, the Joint Chiefs, they don't believe him. And then he says this when he's confronted. Jack Ryan says, I know what he's doing because I've read his book, unquote. And that's when they bought into his argument. That's good counsel for the follower of Jesus Christ. You want to know what God is doing? Read his book. That's how you know what he's doing. You read his book like Simeon did. This man was a devout man of God who had the knowledge of God. We don't find Simeon quoting great Jewish authors. We find him quoting God. This is an amazing man with great character, devout in every way. And then he's hopeful. He's waiting for the consolation of Israel. That means comfort. Again, referring to the promises of God and the long waiting for the Messiah to come. Anybody here have an Advent wreath growing up? Okay, a few of you did. I did. Any of you do one now? I kind of miss it. I, I kind of ran away from it when I became a Christian. And as I look back on some of the symbolism, the Advent wreath, you know, kind of getting you through the, the Christmas season. And we would light those candles and my mother, I could still picture her on the other side of the kitchen table, would always lead us in a song. 
And it was always the same song. O come, O come, Emmanuel, and ransom captive Israel, who mourns in lowly exile here until the Son of God appear. Rejoice! Rejoice, Emmanuel, who ransomed captive Israel. It was a song of anticipation, a song of waiting, a song of hope that Messiah would come. I didn't understand it. I just knew it was sort of a solemn moment. But what we sang, Simeon lived. He lived that song as he waited for the consolation of Israel. It didn't hurt that he had an incentive given to him. Verse 26 tells us the Holy Spirit said, oh, by the way, you're not going to die until you do see him. Now, we don't have that promise here that none of us are going to die, that we'll live on until Jesus returns. But we should live that way. And Simeon gives us hope to that end. He was a hopeful man. And he was a spirit-led man. Repeatedly, the Holy Spirit is brought up in this section of Scripture, three times to be exact. And he is replete throughout the Christmas story. That's big because if you read the Old Testament, you hardly ever see him. He's almost a rarity. And bang, he comes in full bore during the birth of Jesus and around the birth of Jesus, such as this. And Simeon is found being led by the Holy Spirit, verse 26. And he was, it was revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not see death before he'd seen the Lord's Christ. And he came in the Spirit into the temple. So he is a Spirit-led man. That's pretty good character, wouldn't you say? That's a pretty good God post to be told by God or someone else, this is a Spirit-led woman. This is a Spirit-led man. Let me tell you something. If you want to know what God wants to teach you, read his word. If you want to know where God wants to take you, follow his spirit. So, and of course, as I said, it doesn't hurt that the spirit of God had told him he wasn't going to die until he'd seen the Lord's Christ. But in that sense, Simeon lived his life with a heightened sense of anticipation. I mean, imagine. You're not going to die until you see the Messiah. I mean, can you imagine the heightened sense of anticipation you would have? Yet this is the very thing we're told to have as followers of Jesus, if indeed you are one. The grace of God that brings salvation, Paul wrote to Titus, has appeared to all men teaching us this and that, and looking for the blessed hope and the glorious appearing of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who is the blessed hope. Looking, that word means to look with great anticipation. Do you look that way? Do you long for Jesus to return? Are you loving his return? Paul says there's a gift. There's a gift waiting for those who love Jesus, who love his appearing. So here he is, righteous, devout, he's hopeful, he's spirit-led. And what does he do when he's, as he's spirit-led? As he walks into this temple area, the court of the Gentiles, he sees Mary and Joseph, he walks right up to that month-and-a-half-old baby, the firstborn, mind you. I, I get it. When you've had three or four babies, you just kind of pawn you know, them off on anybody. Who cares, you know? I know this because, you know, we've had a few kids. But that firstborn, the firstborn baby, 
the one with all these promises around him? When you consider the Christmas story, when you realize the announcement from Gabriel and everything that took place with the shepherds and whatnot. I mean, here's Mary. She walks into the temple. She's got her little month and a half old and some guy she's never seen before comes in and snatches him out of her arms. Ladies, would you let that happen? Just go like this. Because you wouldn't. And yet there's no sign of resistance here. It's all in keeping with the fact that this man was a spirit-led man. Because you can tell when a man is spirit-led. And there is this resistance that sort of goes down as you let God lead you. If you're filled with God, you'll be led by God. So that said, he picks up this baby. He holds this child in front of Mary and Joseph. And he begins to sing. And he's in the court of the Gentiles. By the way, we know that because of the song. But I'll get get to that in just a moment. So, the song. Look at it again. Lord, now you're letting your servant depart in peace according to your word. For my eyes have seen your salvation. That you prepared in the presence of all peoples a light for revelation to the Gentiles. And for glory to your people Israel. This is the fifth and final Christmas hymn in the Christmas story. Did you know there are hymns in your Bible? There are five of them around the Christmas story. Elizabeth sang a hymn. Mary sang a hymn. Zechariah sang a hymn. And the angels, we know that one. Glory to God in the highest and on earth. Peace. Goodwill towards men. These are all Christmas hymns. And now Simeon picks up the last one, the last of the hymns. And he says, now, as he holds that, the word means finally, it means at last. It insinuates all that he's been waiting for. I can die. That's what the modern vernacular would say. Now I can die. Your servant can depart in peace. The word depart had numerous meanings. It meant It literally meant to untie a ship so you could let it go. It meant to let a prisoner go or to release a prisoner. It even meant to take down a tent. When he said, now I can depart. It meant to take a tent down. Uh, That's why Paul says in 2 Corinthians, if our bodies, this tent is destroyed, we have a building from God not made by human hands. Prepared to us by, from God, right? Our bodies are like a tent. If you've ever been around a, a committal at a, in a graveyard with me doing the committal, many of you, some of you at least, have probably heard me tell the story of just days after my first wife passed away and, and uh, I had just gotten back from a canoe trip. I was in a tent. I lived in a tent, rather, that while I was along the banks of a river for a week. So that tent was up in our front yard, drying out. And between the time I'd set it up there and it had come down, my wife had died. We came back from the funeral, and uh, the kids were sitting around the lunch table, and I saw the tent outside. And I said, will you guys take that tent down? As soon as I said tent, I thought about that scripture. And I said, hey, kids, you know, tell me, do me a favor, tell me about a tent. And they looked at me like, Huh? I said, just, just tell me about a tent. And so after that, they absorbed the question, or the, the, the request. One of them said, well, I mean, yeah, yeah, there's not much to it. Okay, good, good, what else? S- someone said, well, you just live in it for a little while. Good, 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 what else? 
And then one of the kids said, well, when you're done, you just rolled up and you go home. And I said, that's right. That's exactly what your mom just did. She lived in that tent God gave her and rolled it up and went home. And that's what Simeon is saying here. I've seen all that I've waited for. This is a hope that I've seen now. A hope that I've waited for, I now behold. I can die. I can roll my tent up and go home. The word was also used of a sentinel that would be guarding the city who'd been up all night long guarding the city and came down and asked his commanding officer if he could, same word, depart. Meaning, I'm done. I'm exhausted. I want to go back to my barracks and sleep. And that's what Simeon is saying. I've waited long enough, God. I'm ready to go home. So it's a hymn of surrender. When our missionary, Patty Miller, who was the wife of Hal Miller, one of our greatest missionaries, great soul winner. She was here for our missions conference, and she told us then she had cancer just a couple of months ago. And she'd just been told she didn't have long to live. She looked right at my wife and I, and she said, I'm, I'm not afraid to die. I'm ready to go. I've lived a, I've lived a life of service to the Lord. I'm, I'm happy to be taken home. She's rolling up her tent, and she went home just recently. It's a hymn of surrender. It's a hymn of salvation, certainly. My eyes have seen your salvation. And I'll come back to that. It's a missionary, it's a missionary hymn. Look what he says here. Eyes have seen your salvation, verse 31, that you are prepared in the presence of all peoples. This is why I think this took place in the court of the Gentiles. Because Gentiles would have been there. And if you weren't getting, he says, he mentions Gentiles, a light for revelation to the Gentiles, which is a quote right from the Old Testament. How encouraging that would have been. It was a missionary hymn. Every nation, tribe, people, and tongue, God has come. This is the reason why we're sending the Matthews. We can, we, we're happy to have had them, but we want to get them back there. Because this message is for everybody. This isn't an American message. This is a world message. Because God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whoever believes in him will not perish but have everlasting life. That's why. And with that, it's a hopeful hymn. Every other Christmas hymn, be it Elizabeth's or Mary's or Zacharias's or even the angel's, they all had a distinct Jewish flavor to them. This one covers everyone. Nevertheless, they were in the temple area. Mary and Joseph and a baby just over a month old. They encounter Simeon. He blesses God. He knows he can die now. But then he gives his attention to both Joseph and Mary. And if you read those scriptures we read over earlier, he blessed them both. But he speaks directly to Mary. And the reason he did that is because Joseph, it wouldn't be long before he would be off the scene. He would not be at the cross when Jesus died. And Simeon prophesied to Mary. And he said, listen, 
This child that you're holding will be the cause of rising and falling of many. And a sword is going to pierce your soul. And it was a direct reference to the agony that she would have over the suffering of her son as he agonized in suffering for his mother. And by the way, for you and me too. Because while her agony would be like any mother who would watch a child die, his was much more. It was an agony of love for you and for me. As this child who would become a man, who would become a sacrifice, who would hang on a cross, would stare down at this world and cry out, it is finished. The sacrifice has been made to end all sacrifices. The sacrifice to end all sacrifices had entered the temple that day as a baby and would die 33 years later on a cross for you and me. And this whole Christmas story beckons us to place our faith in him so that our hope will not be in this life. The Bible warns us not to have our, in fact, it tells us not to have all of our hope wrapped up in this life, but beyond it. And if it is beyond it, and if it's wrapped up in Jesus, no matter what this life dibbies out to you, you can take it because you have hope. And you'll have hope because you have Jesus. And so two things, and we wrap it up. One to you that are Christians, that are true followers of Jesus. It's one thing to know you're going to heaven. It's another thing. It's one thing to be ready to go to heaven. It's another thing to be ready to meet the Lord. I've said this many times over the years. And it's as true as the first time I thought about this. Some of you might be ready to go to heaven, but you're not ready to meet the Lord. You're not longing for his return. You're not looking for his return. You're not living like he's going to return. That's the reason why John said, and now little children abide in him so that when he appears, we might have confidence and not be ashamed before him at his appearing. So it's one thing to be ready to go to heaven. It's another thing to be ready to meet the Lord. Are you even looking for him? And then for those of you who don't know Jesus, for those of you that are still trying to get this thing figured out, for those of you who are still in the back seat, outsiders looking in, so to speak, and that's some of you here, and you know it. Simeon could not die before he had met Jesus. You can't afford to die until you've met him with a heart of faith. You will rise or fall in eternity based on what you do with Jesus Christ. So which will it be? Will you rise or will you fall? Without Jesus, you have no hope. And the Apostle Paul said as much to the Thessalonians who'd seen some of their dear ones die. And some of them had died placing their faith in Jesus and they were worried about them. And Paul says, stop worrying about them. 
Their hope is now realized. They're in heaven. And furthermore, they're going to be resurrected. But it's the ones who died without Jesus. He said, we don't sorrow as those who have no hope. If you're here, I don't care if you're wealthy. I don't care if you're prestigious. I don't care if you're well-known. I don't care if you got a great bank account. You got a great 401k. Your retirement's all figured out. If you don't have Jesus, you don't have hope. You have no hope if you don't have Jesus. But if you're here and you're struggling and you're wrestling with this or you're wrestling with that and you're discouraged about this or you're down about that, and that's probably applying to some of you. If you have Jesus, you have hope no matter what you're going through, because he didn't come to take away your problems. He came to take away your sins. So remember that and cling to it. And those of you who are still in the back seat and you're thinking, I don't have this hope, but I would like it. I would like to have this. It's very, very, very simple, but it will take a humble heart, an open heart, And a prayer from your heart that Jesus would come, take your sins away, and become your Savior. Will you stand with me? And we'll pray. Our Father, we are grateful today that we can once again enjoy this great season of incarnation. You, God, becoming flesh, becoming man in Jesus. Thank you so much, Lord, for this great story and the stories within the story and the characters within the story. And men like Simeon, Lord, who who were given great praise, not because they were anything in and of themselves, but because they simply trusted in you and they allowed you to really just change their lives. Thank you for this great hymn of praise. And I pray, Lord, that there would be a a genuine desire of surrender in this room today. Like Simeon. I pray for the Christians here, Lord, who uh, might be ready to go to heaven, but they're not ready to meet you. Because their lives are so messed up. And they're so selfish and narcissistic. and, and And they're miserable because they're not living for you. pray there would be some genuine surrender and humility going on here. So that you might create in all of us who know you, Lord, the spirit of Simeon, Lord, the spirit of great anticipation, expectation, and certain hope that you are coming again. I pray for those, Lord, who don't know Jesus. They might have this sense, Lord, that they can't, they, they're not ready to die until they see him with the eyes of faith, believe that he died and rose again for them. If that's your heart, if that's you, and you would say, that's me, I want this, I'm, I'm, I'm tired of saying no to you, God. I, I want to believe in you. I want to receive you. I want to believe in Jesus.
then do so from your heart. He's listening. God sees your heart. And if it is a desire to receive him, then do so from your heart. Acknowledge your sin. Believe he died for that sin and rose again for that, for your victory and salvation. And would you just express that to God and he'll change your life. Our Father, thank you for this season. And even if we don't physically fall on our knees right now, Lord, may our hearts do so. Maybe some of us actually do so. And then sing with the hymn writer, oh, come to our hearts. Come to my heart, Lord Jesus. There's room in my heart for thee. Amen.